Welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. You are now entering a spiz-free zone. No unicorns, no rainbows, no chiropractic fairy tales, just progressive talk for progressive chiropractors. So buckle up and get ready. We're moving the profession forward. And now, your host, Dr. Bobby Maybe. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Forward, the podcast of the Forward Thinking Chiropractic Alliance. My name is Dr. Bobby Maybe. I'm your host. And today, we're going to forego all the advertising and promoting of events and things like that and just get right to it because we're continuing our legend series with Dr. Stu McGill. Doc, doctor, like professor, you know, professor, doctor. PhD type doctor, um, but uh, he, he's got some clinical skills as well uh, because he has been forced, uh, his hand has been forced to, to answer the clinical call in some ways. Um, me and Stu have already gone through this once before and the audio didn't turn out too well. The theory is, at least my operative theory, is that his uh, stash was affecting either the microphone or the internet somehow. So hopefully, uh, Stu, you trimmed your stash back at least a little bit, but not <laughs> enough that it'll weaken you as in Samson when he well, cut off his hair. <laughs> Good afternoon, Bobby. I think it's morning for you in California, but, uh, or not in California, pardon me, you're in Oregon, aren't you? Yeah. But uh, I've, I've cleaned my lunch out of my mustache. How about that? <laughs> um, which is a bummer that the other podcast didn't make it because we hit some very salient points, but I think it actually serves us to an advantage because we can be more concise and hit even more points this time around. What do you think? Uh, well, let's give it a whirl. You sound good. So I'm ready if you're ready. Yes, sir. Well, let's start where we always need to start. And that's at the beginning. Um, take me back. Tell me the story of your career, of Stu McGill, of what you've experienced over the last 30 years or so, your experience with science and how the interpretation or understanding of science has changed, those sort of things. Um, take me back to where it all began. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, as we discussed a little bit last time, I was never supposed to be a professor and I, I never really was university material. But for uh, several different reasons. It was all because of sports and activity, really, that uh, I uh, went back and finished high school and uh, then went on to university. And uh, again, it was sports, why I did my master's, and then a chance meeting, meeting at a hockey game that I started my PhD. So it was all just a chance. Uh, but uh, I became a professor quite young, I suppose, at uh, the age of 27 or 28, I think it was. And uh, I was trained as a scientist, not a clinician. And I would get invites to different meetings, clinical meetings, orthopedic meetings, neurology meetings, manual medicine meetings, etc. And the clinicians typically would say, well, that's an interesting perspective on the mechanism of uh, back pain or, or disrupted tissue. Uh, that seems relevant to a difficult patient that we're puzzling over right now. Would you come and see the patient with us? And I would say, well, no, uh, I'm not a trained clinician. Uh, but they said, well, don't worry, we'll, we'll come with you. And uh, I learned very quickly that I didn't have the same biases that they had 
uh, and I would treat every patient as an experiment uh, in progress. I would probe them. I would uh, manipulate different variables and see if it made the pain better or worse. And knowing what I was doing mechanically, I had a little bit of an insight into what tissue I was further stressing uh, and either uh, causing more pain or taking the pain away. And then we would get into issues like uh, joint stability and things like that, that uh, I understood structural stability from uh, engineering. And when you apply it to uh, orthopedic joints, the same principles uh, apply. So th that's uh, uh, how. Uh, the beginning of the evolution uh, began. Uh, and then, uh, again, it's partly my personality, I suppose. Um, I started a second laboratory. The first laboratory, we measured intact people who had pain, and we used different approaches to try and measure the stress on, on different back tissues. And then I developed a tissue laboratory based on cadaveric spines that used uh, primarily animal models, uh, simply because I couldn't get enough humans and the odd uh, human. Uh, and then I developed the uh, clinic, the research clinic, uh, where we saw uh, not really the average back-pained person, uh, we saw both ends of the spectrum, the very disabled uh, and difficult um, painful backs, and then we also saw the elite uh, performers, the athletes at the other end. Um, both were interesting because uh, they were dancing on a knife edge. The pained person could hardly do anything before uh, pain was triggered, and the athlete were at such high loads and high speeds that their margin of safety was razor thin as well. So it was, it was fun to dance on those two knife edges. Um, but here's how our science became quite unique. We did not test hypotheses. I have never tested a hypothesis in my life. Uh, we, we didn't perform that typical um, revered line of, of methodology uh, so common at university labs. Instead, all of our questions came from you people. When I was uh, working with clinicians and they asked me a question, I said, I don't know the answer to that. I made a note of that and that became our next experiment. Or if we were dealing with a pained person and there was something puzzling us, uh, we would then concoct a scientific approach where we could probe whatever the uh, variables uh, were and try and understand them. So uh, we would then take that back to the clinic and test it. Did it in fact work? Then we ran clinical trials and uh, those kinds of things. So it was a beautiful synergy between the clinic uh, and the lab. Um, and that's probably how we uh, arrived at this sort of quasi-science clinician <laughs> that, that I finished yeah. off my career on. But that's, uh, I'm sorry, it's probably too long an answer. It's hybridized for sure. Yeah. Um, that, that, but, but your ability to be agnostic to the process uh, and, and just observe what was going on was probably the most powerful thing. We see that in, uh, I, I've interviewed quite a few people who would also be considered uh, 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 at a status of either 
mastery or or uh, uh, legendary status, and they tend to say some of the same things that uh, they they as they grew on they got they got they almost the opposite. So it sounds like from a Stu McGill standpoint, you were almost born with an agnosticism to bias, but these individuals tend to shed their bias as they go and learn that really the only way you can do this is in this N equals one approach where you look at everything as it is in front of you instead of bringing something to the table with it. Uh, I, I, I think so. In fact, I taught a assessment course a few weeks ago and uh, went to dinner with a couple of the senior delegates afterwards and they said yes that was probably the biggest thing that they got out of the course because on the last day i assessed uh, three patients in front of them and they said yeah you came at each one with no bias you allowed the scientific method of assessment and probing them to lead the way and when i saw a result that's what we went with do we have as clinicians an assessment method that comes close? Is there an agnostic approach to looking at a human body and coming up with some sort of way to assess and then apply our treatment to them? Well, how I would answer that is even my own assessments are what I call living. In other words, if I had a 70-year-old female with a certain history and uh, uh, description of uh, pain patterns, and then I had a 22-year-old baseball player, would I use the same assessment? No, of course not. So even my assessment is living and changing as we go. So I have only a general framework, and the framework is this. Uh, if, if you saw our, our clinic now, it's actually in my house since I've retired from the university, but a large part of my house is dedicated exclusively to this. The first place we go after I watch them take off their coat, untie their shoes, put down their bags, walk across the room and sit down on a very stiff couch with a, a back support that they can adjust. All of that is, is part of the exam, by the way, as you know. Uh -huh. And then they sit in front of a fireplace and that fire is always lit and going before they arrive. I do not sit in front of them. I sit at 45 degrees from them. And my first, I welcome them. And uh, uh, then I say, come over, tell me your story. And to start that way, for many of them, is such an emotional experience because no one has ever asked them, just tell me your story. And in listening to that story, I, uh, I'm listening to what their priorities are in life, what, what their passions are, what's driving them. They may reveal to me the impediments uh, of previous attempts that have been made. And if I can't deal with those impediments, I will fail too. I'm assessing their learning style. Um, and I'm also watching their movement habits. So then after that, I then start asking very specific probing questions. Uh, one might be, uh, when you roll over in bed, have you ever had a, a really sharp pain? And if they say yes, that's a pretty good indicator that I'm dealing with some joint um, instability. So I have several layers of questioning like that. But that was just the beginning that now really sets the stage for what the rest of my assessment becomes. So when you say, is there an assessment process that uh, comes close to this? Uh, if it's just a set 
assessment every time, my answer would be no. Right. Because that assessment must change depending on the person uh, in front of you. I mean, you might be de dealing with a very fragile person or the next person, they don't get pain till they lift 800 pounds if they're a competitive power lifter. So again, it's, uh, so in, in the broadest sense, my answer would be no. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that assessment uh, will then, uh, we, we then leave that room and I write down a few things that I'm going to test. You know, should I be looking at their hips? Am I looking for neural tensions? Uh, am I looking for instabilities? Because they already reported to me that sometimes the pain goes down their right leg and other times it's their left, a big toe that goes on fire or whatever yeah. it is. I mean, there is a symptom pattern that right away I have a pretty good idea of what the mechanism is. There aren't too many mechanisms that would produce such a, a changing symptom like that. So then we go downstairs and do the pain provocations, which... Uh, <laughs> the basement, huh? Yeah, the <laughs> basement, but it, it's, it's quite a nice clinic down there. I have a... Torture room. Not, not really. I, I tell people, I'm going to take you to the level of discomfort, but not to uh, pain. But, uh, you know, how hard do I have to push them? Uh, or say they're an extremely fragile person which, uh, with a very, very low capacity. I'm going to have to be very judicious over my probes and tests now because right. I can only do three or four of them before I start sensitizing them, thus influencing the results thereafter. But if it's a very robust person and say they've got a really interesting nerve drag uh, with you know an underhooked root on one side and an overhook on the other and something really juicy and fun, um, now we can really show off and, and play with all those neural tensions to, uh, to sort it out and say it's a, an odd disc bulge that's causing it. Great. Then we'll go into a routine and try and shrink that disc bulge immediately and see if we can get some, some nerve uh, mobilization or whatever it is. Anyway, it's a, again, sort of a long answer, but um, then at the end, I, I finish up by uh, looking at some imaging uh, quite possibly and then uh, I'll go into a uh, catatonic state for about 10 minutes. And I'll just say, give me 10 minutes. I, I need to summarize my thoughts now on, on what we saw. And then I try and explain to them. Uh, I certainly don't treat them like five-year-olds. I give them a very thorough explanation. So now they have a roadmap on what they should not do. That's the most important thing, what they should not do in terms of reducing the cause as we've just identified it. And then we start building uh, therapeutic exercises that will create a foundation for them to perform the activities that whatever the goal happens to be. So that, that's, that's it, but that can be a totally different assessment process uh, from one person to the next. Well, I think that's crucial, uh, and maybe a lot of clinicians don't have the opportunity to do it because it requires some space sometimes, but I don't think it absolutely requires space, is that once you've done your assessment or your exam or whatever you call it, uh, many people are, are, they often go ex like straight from their examination process to the treatment process. You know, they'll go through all their examination tools and all the things they do, and they go, okay, I know what I need to do. Come over here to the table. Let's get working. I think it's, it's so interesting when I'm training uh, clinicians who want to be known as providers of our approach, typically 
they will do a few tests and then they'll start talking to the patient as if they know and, and they're already declaring what what what's going on right. they talk way that's too a bias early. yeah that's a bias now they start looking for it exactly and then the next test shows them completely the opposite now they've got to slow down and eat their words <laughs> not good in front of a patient Sometimes I think it's nice if you have a separate room where after you've done the examination, you can move the patient to a separate room and then have a conversation about what you found. Um, of course, what to avoid, go through a description, explain to them thoroughly. And then of course there's a treatment room somewhere, but not everybody has that space to have like three extra different rooms to go to. Um, but it's a nice way to change the pace. So in one room, I'm an investigator. In the next room, I'm an educator. And then in the third room, I'm a, a clinician. I'm doing stuff. So that's just kind of where I come from. Yeah. Um, with, let's break down a couple mechanisms here. First, let's break down disc herniation mechanisms and what you tend to see in, in some of these patients. And then maybe we'll break down some instability mechanisms as well. Okay. Well, um, you know, I can talk ad, ad nauseum on different. You better. Yeah, you, I hope you would. But uh, let, let me give the two most common right now. And uh, this first one I don't talk about very often, but it begins with an overload of compression. And I'm going to uh, choose that one to start with because of this craziness that's going on in gyms across North America, where trainers are taking, uh, say, a stay-at-home mom, and within three months, they have her deadlifting her body weight. Uh, when you overload the end plate of the vertebra with a heavy lift like that, and if you crack that cartilaginous end plate, uh, it, that crack can quite often extend into the Sharpies fibers where the collagen fibers that form the annulus uh, gain their attachment to the bone. Once that scaffolding becomes cracked and compromised, uh, the, and, and not only that, the disc is slightly flatter now, so there's more uh, stress on the uh, annular fibers. Uh, that allows a looseness to occur among the fibers and what holds them together to prevent any nuclear travel from the inside of the nucleus outwards through the uh, annulus are the fibers, they don't tear, at least very rarely do they tear, they separate or delaminate. So uh, with a little bit of a height loss because of that overload and compression, and then the fibers are, are breaking from the bone scaffolding, uh, they can delaminate a lot faster now and lead to a disc bulge or a herniation. Um, the, the second mechanism people have heard me talk about uh, probably too much, and that is a bending motion. Uh, repeated bending will over time loosen the collagen. Uh, and, and finally get to herniation. Now there's so many factors that influence that. The first one being the concomitant load. Um, so if we took a thin willow branch and we bent it back and forth, there's no stress and therefore 
no damage to the willow branch. But if you took a thicker branch and bent it to the same level, only a few cycles, that thicker branch would, would shatter because the stress in a thicker rod is, is so much higher. It's a function of the radial thickness. Yeah. So, so now we, you know, there are some people um, who seem to be able to do hundreds and thousands of cumulative sit-ups with no issue, but they're almost always slender spines. And they're almost always people who are, you know, people like gymnasts and, and people who do a lot of mobility and handle their body weight, but they're not lifting heavy loads. So they adapt their collagen to be quite loose and they have a, a slender skeleton. You don't find people with skeletons that are suited to playing offensive tackle in the NFL as gymnasts. They have much thicker spines, and what you will find is with those people, when they do sit-ups, they will delaminate their collagen so much faster, and it's simply a matter of the uh, cumulative stress because of their uh, anatomy, the, the, the thicker spine. Um, and the shape of the discs matter a lot, whether they're round or ovoid or limacon or, or whatever. But anyway, um, it's so interesting that Olympic lifters, for example, very rarely have a disc bulge. Power lifters have them so much more often. Um, they're, they're thicker spines. They uh, uh, certainly uh, overcompress their, their uh, end plates. But maybe I'll, I'll just finish off with two notions there on adaptation. Um, so getting back to the disc herniation direct mechanism, um, you can uh, adapt that collagen and the, and the ground substance, the goo that holds the fibers together, one of two ways. If you do a lot of full range of motion, stretching, mobility training, fantastic. Go dance, enjoy your life, have lots of mobility in your spine, but avoid heavy lifting. Uh, the, the collagen tends to delaminate much faster with that type of spine. Now let's take the opposite pathway of adaptation, someone who lifts heavy. If they lift heavy and back off on the spine mobility, they, they will get a stiffer uh, ground substance between the uh, fibers and they are much more impervious to uh, fiber delamination under high loads. Uh, so you can adapt your spine one of two ways. Um, so people have these discussions not realizing that differential adaptation and they, they apply the wrong principle to the wrong person. But going back to those end plates and the original mechanism, it's again so interesting, as you know, I'm so critical of radiological practice when uh, a radiologist reads an MR or, or one of the images, you, you choose what flavor it is, and they never see the person. And, uh, you know, a 35-year-old power lifter will go in, have an MR or a CT in the radiology report will say, well, this person has sclerotic M plates as if it's a disease or a condition. No <laughs> kidding. They've, they've micro-fractured their end plates so many times right. that the micro-fractures have calloused up. 
that's the adaptation. That's the adaptation, yeah. So it's not a pathology. That was the adaptation to the chronic load, and it's what allows a power lifter to lift a thousand pounds. So, yeah, and anyway, there's a couple of different mechanisms, and uh, it should help with not only assessment and how you would provoke or probe each one if you suspected one as being the the pin generator, um, but it would also give you a lot of clues for. Um, uh, programming. Can I just mention one more thing? Because we sure. did this on a podcast yesterday and we were talking about why so many bodybuilders and trainers at gyms are, uh, they are experiencing a higher rate of uh, disc bulges. And uh, I'm, I'm quite positive the reason is bodybuilders typically train three days a week. You don't get stronger on the days you train. You get stronger on the days that you rest. I mean, you train to, to create the adaptation. So a bodybuilding adaptation cycle is one day of training and a day off, and, you, and, you, and then you get two days off sometime in the weekly cycle. But that doesn't work for powerlifting. Powerlifters, when you assess the programming of the grand old men and women of powerlifting, they will do a heavy squat day, and then they take five days off. And they allow the microfracturing that's occurred, which again we've measured this, uh, to callus up, scaffold in. And uh, but if if the, the bodybuilders who train that way uh, to that intensity and then only take one day off, the the microfracturing accumulates, and right. then it allows, as I said, the Sharpie's fibers to to rip out and the delamination occurs and they wonder why they have a disc bulge. So in their particular case, it was poor programming. But aesthetically pleasing. Uh, to some. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, how does that really, how does that, can you elaborate on what you would find an in instability then? Well, uh, yes. For instance, the, the 50 year old lady who rolls over in bed and has pain. Right. Well, again, um, could I start with a little bit of an explanation of what instability always is and the always. mechanism? Because, as you know, I have to create the scientific foundation before we can have a discussion on anything. Definitions before assumptions. Thank you. Okay. So, spine stability, core stability, spine stiffness, trunk stability. What does all of this mean? Um, as someone uh, who, who measures it, there's uh, three um, overarching principles of spine stability. Uh, let's work on the first principle of proximal stiffness in an articulated linkage. So our bodies obviously are articulated linkages. A backhoe, a heavy machine that digs holes in the ground, which is a tractor with a, a, a backhoe on the back, is an articulated linkage. The first thing the operator does is put down the stabilizers, which are outriggers that anchor the big part of the tractor into the ground, which allows the distal part, the uh, claws and the bucket, to pull earth. Your body is exactly the same. So imagine this. Let's say someone could bench press 200 kilo or, or 440 pounds for you Americans. Um, now, uh, in, in a standing world, 
let's do a push. So say they were a, a offensive tackle on, on the line and they're pushing someone and they've done their bench press exercises. So they're going to use a uniarticular muscle like the pec major. Now, the architecture of the pec major crosses the shoulder joint, a ball and socket joint. Distally to the ball and socket joint, it connects to the humerus and it flexes the arm around to create the distal push. But proximally, the pec major attaches to the rib cage. So on its proximal side, it only bends and twists the rib cage towards the shoulder. Now you've got an energy leak and actually a mechanical collapse of the articulated linkage if you stand and push someone and use your pec major. However, if they stiffen their torso proximally and arrest all the movement, 100% of that pec major force and activity is, is directed distal to the ball and socket joint. 100% of it creates a fast and powerful limb movement. So in other words, you needed proximal stability to get distal athleticism. So if you want to run, turn, or let's just take a child who has uh, compromised one quadratus lumborum. Watch them walk. They can't. It, say they had a right paralyzed quadratus lumborum. They could have stance on a right leg and swing their left leg to walk. And then when they planted their left leg and swung their right, the whole right side of the pelvis would collapse down. That's how important proximal stability is because without it, you can't even walk. So that's the first uh, scientific tenant. The second one is the spine is a curious uh, element because it's the only articulated linkage in your body that, that is flexible and bends. It's a flexible rod, which is fabulous. It allows us to uh, dance and procreate and <laughs> do all of these fun things with our torsos. But on the other hand, if you're a new mom and you've got to pick up your child out of the crib, you now have to stiffen that column, otherwise it will collapse under the weight of the muscle compression and, and the weight of the child. So you're asking that flexible rod to now turn into a stiff beam to allow it to bear load. Um, now we get into the role of the guy wire system all around the spine that creates a symmetric stiffness to allow it to bear loads and allows the flexible rod to be a, a load bearing structure. So violation of that principle will lead to uh, stress uh, at, a, at a spinal joint and ultimately uh, some, some micro damage and, and pain. The third one, the person has already created some laxity. So think of injury at any joint in the body. It can be defined mechanically by a loss of uh, stiffness and integrity of the uh, center of rotation of movement. So uh, you get micro movements at a joint, just as a, a knee orthopedist would assess uh, the uh, health of a knee through a drawer test and detect instability. You do the same thing on the spinal joints with, through uh, maybe a prone instability test, or there's several of them. Right, exactly. Yeah, and you would probe and create the laxity, and uh, usually you can nail the uh, unstable joint immediately and, and determine the uh, site of pain, and you back that up with, oh, well, does the neurology make sense with the nerve roots and, and peripheral symptoms and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, there are three non-negotiable components to stability 
that is quantifiable, both clinically and from a mechanical structural point of view. All right, now we can uh, uh, ha have a reasonable discussion about clinical uh, instability. Clinical instability, I, yeah. Yeah, and when I said, uh, how would I boil this down to get to the point with a patient in language that they understand? Well, when a person is laying in bed, uh, if they, they're not fighting gravity, they're not upright, uh, their torso muscles are quite lax. They aren't supplying the stiffening stability to, to, to really guide joint movement. So when they roll over in bed and they get that sharp pain, movement catches through the range of motion or rolling in bed uh, are because of a, a joint that, that lacks sufficient stiffness. So uh, that, that's a primary question to determine. Or I might say, have you ever moved uh, and um, you, 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 it took your breath away. You had a little movement catch. Some people can hear them. They sound like a, a cavitation. I'll get a little sharp right. pain, all depending on the, on the peculiarities of their particular instability. The uh, bend down in the shower story. Yes, yeah, but very, very much so. And uh, as you know, we, we measure these. Um, oh, it's, it's just so disheartening when I'm doing, you know, some of the uh, legal work and uh, some orthopod will give testimony and, and use the MRI as the gold standard of whether or not something is uh, pathological at a joint. Well, every one of your listeners has manual skills and uh, you quite often will feel that pathologic movement at a joint, uh, but I, I don't have those manual skills to, to, to your level, as you know, but uh, I sure as hell can see it on video fluoroscopy. So when that person moves through the range of motion, uh, their MR, which was taken static laying on their back, uh, it, it, it's, it doesn't show any of the movement instability. The person moves through a plane and when that joint reaches 17 degrees of lateral uh, bend, it clunks, clunk, and you see the massive yes. shear movement. Yes. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that was it. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So, you know. <laughs> Sometimes uh, in motor vehicle injuries, I can find a... a a flexion extension x-ray, a lateral cervical flexion extension x-ray can sort of mimic what you would see in fluoroscopy, not the specific movement or jitter, but at least the instability or the shift of one vertebra over the other in these different positions and at least give us a representation of what happens when the patient is in motion. But a static film, I, I mean, I, I just don't get much information from a static film at all anymore that I think is is valuable to me or the patient. Yeah. Well, you you do get so much more from multiple statics or the dynamic for sure. Right. Right. Uh, multiple pictures over time for sure. Yeah. But um, you know, we can also play games with static MRs because say we had a dynamic disc bulge, that would be one that would shrink and grow based on the previous uh stress exposure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, we'll we'll do this. We'll have uh, a a patient who, yeah, they show a nice juicy uh, disc bulge, and you can see the open fissure through the uh, <laughs> angles. And then we will put them in an appropriate posture. We might add uh, a bit of a bending load. We might add a bit of traction. 
um, and see if we can, within five minutes, shrink that bulge by performing the opposite in terms of the hydraulic driving mechanism. And within five minutes, we can change the shape of that disc. So there would be an example of taking a before and after MR of an intervention that only took five minutes. You can almost represent that with uh, the, those newer, the dynamic disc designs, the disc models. You can almost represent that for a patient in, to some degree. They're you absolutely can. They're fabulous models. Uh, many of them are based on the uh, mechanisms that we've documented over the years, um, but they're fabulous for patient education and they're so empowering because it shows them they are in control. Yeah, yes. they are in control of their posture, their movement, their loading to stop the cause and it's a visual and you know i've heard some uh, clinicians say oh you you don't want to mention that to a patient because you'll give them fear and and to think that they might have pathology in their body and every thing i've never had pain that. science Stu. pain science it's all in the brain there's nothing going on in the body at all the body well, doesn't have pain i the the, the most uh, psychologically disturbed patients I have are those who've been told the pain is in their head or they were treated like five-year-olds. Uh, and then I'll explain to them and show them through those models sometimes why they have the, the pain that they do. And they say, you know, thank you. You're the first person who hasn't treated me like a five-year-old. I get it. I understand now why I have to do this. And over time, I will wind down my pain sensitivity. They're empowered. It's, it's life transformational. No, Stu, they need the pain workbook. They need to just go through the workbook and finish their pain workbook, and then they will have less pain. I, had a, I, I saw a number of patients in London, England uh, last month. One patient came in who was a police officer, a very solid citizen both physically and psychologically what a broken man he was uh just moving in a way slouching sitting down and his first move getting out of a chair was in deflection and i could just see i, I could just see the behavior it fit the pattern you know we we, we become good at pattern recognition don't we right, you know yeah. you can see here here's a guy with a a uh, a dynamic posterior disc bulge. And then uh, he thought he, he, he knew what he was supposed to do, but I, I uh, assessed him. And uh, within about 20 minutes, we were showing him, you know, the shortstop squat and uh, move your hips back, keep your, your spine out of flexion and don't drive the hydraulic mechanism of the dynamic bulge. I mean, that's, I'm explaining that to you. I didn't say that to him. Yeah. All I did was teach him the technique and then said, now to stand up, pull your hands up your thighs and pull your hips through. Don't worry about lifting with your back. And he started to cry and he said, I have no pain. And then he told me the story about the National Health Service in England who now has quite heavily uh, defaulted into this so-called paint science. I thought we were pain scientists. I didn't know what other people <laughs> were, but anyway. And, and he said, no one's ever shown me the mechanical cause of my back pain before. He said, they've given me drugs. They've, they've told me it's in my head. Uh, he lost his job. And then he said, they gave me a book to read, How to Live with Pain. <laughs> and he was just destroyed. 
But anyway, I followed up with him. He's coming along very well. And uh, anyway, uh, that, that's a bit of a, a fun story, but such a, a story of tragedy that was so unnecessary. But it segues into our conversation about research digestion or the ability to digest research appropriately. I mean, there's so much out there due to the internet and our ability to at least get our hands on like every single abstract available, but it's really what you do with that information. And everyone's given just enough information, just like they're given just enough rope to hang themselves with, and then they go with it. And well, yeah, I, I abhor reading abstracts. I abhor the state of the literature now where all of these offshore journals have come along and researchers pay them money to uh, publish their, their work. And when you, when you read the study, oh, you know, exercise made no difference. That might be the conclusion in the abstract. And then I read the paper <laughs> and on average, it made no difference. But then I look at the scatter of the data. So on average, it was no different. But the scatter in the data said 40% of the people got better. 40% right. of the people got worse. And 20% it made no difference. Absolutely perfect. Would you, would you manipulate a highly unstable joint? No, you'd stabilize it. Would you move or mobilize a stock joint? Yeah, you might. You would get totally different opposite. So do you see what I mean? The, the people do these experiments on something so non-homogeneous like back pain right. and don't look at the spread and scatter of the data. And then they, 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 they think they're now intelligent because they, they read an abstract and have an impression. Oh, don't get me started on this. It sounds like I did. Sounds like that just <laughs> I mean, the fun is in the scatter of the data and how they presented and, right. oh, the subcategorization. And yeah, and if you showed me something like that and you said, okay, so those 44 people did benefit from exercise, I'll say, who are those 44 people? Tell exactly. me who. Exactly. What was the feature that distinguished them from the 40% who got worse? That's where the clinical magic lies. And, and it's not, I mean, we're, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not specifically getting on the quote unquote pain science people. I think that's a euphemism. I mean, there are people that identify themselves as pain scientists uh, that they fall under a certain category of their treatment choices. I think for the most part, they're on to a lot of good things. Uh, you just can't lose the biomechanical. It's a biopsychosocial issue, this pain, if you want to talk pain and you can't lose the bio the biomechanical part at all it matters and there are people out there that say the biomechanical portion doesn't matter at all well, and aren't they aren't they terrific clinicians yeah well we, we have to clean know, up their mess every day being a, a paragon of the social media sphere uh usually when someone is, uh chirps a little bit too much you start looking in their background and then you start to make some assumptions like yeah maybe this person wasn't the greatest clinician when it came to the biomechanical side of things, maybe they came to the pain science assumption because they were actually pretty poor at uh, biomechanical care and uh, their biases led them to this place that they found, you know, they found a home. They found uh, a home I, in talk I, I, therapy because they really weren't that good at the, uh, the rest of the stuff. But I'm that's not, my opinion. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But because you, you, know, you could have just said no comment, you know. No, no, no. That's that's that would lack integrity. <laughs> but um, I, I think all of this would be cured by giving the patient a thorough assessment. 
Yeah. And if the person has uh, a good component of uh, they are a bit of a hypochondriac, they're off to the doctor for every little burp and fart, I get that. There are those people. And there are people where I, I say, look, brother, you got to get on with this. You don't have pain right now, do you? But look at, look at your behavior. You're searching for the pain. Where did it disappear to? Oh, there it is. You know, they're obsessed. So I get it just like you and just like every reasonable mind. Uh, of course, this spectrum of behavior and pain triggers and uh, it, it exists, but the thorough assessment and people will listen to my assessment and say, oh, well, that was a mechanical assessment. They've never worked with me and they've never worked with you. But when right. people do, they realize, wow, this is a thorough investigation. And it obviously will that's evident in your fireside chat. <laughs> you know? So we will get at what the influences and the social factors and the psychological variables and the mechanical elements that are causing this person to be so disabled. And that's the cure. Do a decent assessment, figure it out, and you will find those people who, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if you gave them some other pain to worry about, they might forget about their back pain, but certainly this is not the majority. The majority, you can very quickly put them into different postures, ask them to do different motions, and vary the loads, and you will find the modulation of their pains quite quickly. Um, let me see if I have a question. Let me see if I want to jump to this question this fast. <laughs> um, because I don't want to, you know, the story of Professor McGill with time is going to be how he has understood and how he has helped other people understand low back pain and, all and also how to modulate that. So bringing up a conversation like DNS is not always the best. It's not the best arena to do it because a lot of times we see DNS referred to in, in the, in the sphere of performance and not in pain. Um, but you have spent time around the DNS folks like Pavel, you're going to Amsterdam next year. Yes. And you're going to be surrounded by the DNS folks there as well. So, I just found that out. You're ahead of me. So, uh, so these things are going to, yeah, I, I got the flight for you. <laughs> and, um, and you're having a shrimp scampi and broccoli when you get there. Your first meal. Um, so what, what do you feel about the DNS process? I know it doesn't, it's not, it's not a companion, but maybe it's a cousin to what you do. Uh, you know, I just interviewed Brent, Brett Winchester, who will also be in Amsterdam with you. You know, and there is a component of proximal stiffness and then distal mobility in the DNS concept. It's just sort of abstract to most people. They don't understand it very well. But, um, you know, go ahead well, I, I can give you a, a few thoughts and, and I'll t tell you flat out, I don't understand it. Right. Uh, it's I, heady. It, it's, it's, it's somewhat heady. It, it, it is. And I don't understand it from the first principle because, and I'm going to preface this by saying, uh, Clayton Skaggs, who many of your folks will know, organized a day. Uh, first of all, I had a social day with Pavel 
and Elena, his uh, chief teaching assistant, and we enjoyed each other's company. And then we, uh, the next day, we each gave a couple of lectures back and forth, and then we saw patients together. Um, the, the, they were three very interesting patients. The first one was a fighter who'd fought uh, in the UFC. Uh, the second patient was uh, an Olympic silver medalist in sprints. So again, a very spectacular specimen and person to assess. Uh, and the third person was a golfer, not a top PGA golfer, but, but a, a, a good club golfer, as I recall. And Pavel assessed the first uh, person. I was led out of the room. I had to go and sit down poolside with, with a person who had a cell phone. And uh, then I was brought up and then I assessed the same person all over again. And Pavel had to leave the room. We did that times three. And by the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, how did I do? I, I, how did Pavel do? And, and we went, uh, we had a little social at uh, Clayton's place that night. And I asked some of the delegates and they just had this wry smile on their face. And they said, it was fascinating to watch. You both took completely different paths, but you arrived at the same location three times out of three. So I hope that frames what I'm going to say. I don't understand how he does it. and I don't understand how he gets there, but that that's all I can say was, was to echo their comments. I think uh, to some degree it's because it, DNS can also be quite agnostic in its approach as well. Ah, I think. okay. Well, uh, nonetheless, um, I don't... With the framework, but it, but it can be. Yeah. So, but I have watched Pavel work. Pavel's actually worked on my son, just to uh, reveal uh, that aspect uh, quite a number of years ago as well. But um, he never asks about pain. This puzzles me. So <laughs> I, I uh, you know, when I open with a person, I say, well, well tell me, you know, uh, why you're here and everything that you think I need to know. And of course, uh, I listen to what causes their pain, what impact it has on their life, what can they do that's pain-free, what would they do if they didn't have pain. In other words, it's a heavily biased understanding that, that, that comes from the pain. My whole assessment is based on finding the mechanism of their pain. So when, uh, and I'm, I'm going to throw out one other thing, and you'll remember this from the Stanford days, when I said, uh, uh, when a person has pain, I know what perfect movement for them is. It's the movement that doesn't cause pain. Right. But if a person doesn't have pain, how can any of us be so arrogant as to say, you're not moving well? Look at some of the athletes that we watch world-class people who don't move very well. You know, I was thinking, watching the Boston Marathon a few years ago and watching one of the people who won cross the line with a terrible egg beater kind of a leg gait. <laughs> and then I thought, I know about this person. They don't have pain. Would anyone go up to that person and say, you're not moving well, I think we're going to do corrective exercise? They've just won the Boston Marathon with no pain. So do, do you see how in my world, Pain is necessary to give me context for what, what is good. So 
if they don't do that in BNS, I don't get it. And, and that's one of the, the big uh, problems uh, for me. I, I don't get how they can converge. Now, I've watched Pavel work. And what he will say, I'm now going to uh, stimulate a certain reflex. But when I watch how he moves the person to stimulate the reflex, it's a very clever manipulation of the line of drive through the body, the base of support, the position of the center of mass, etc. And it's something I would have done, but I would have done it for a different reason and for a different explanation. So there you go. There's a, another uh, uh, observation on it. But when I see patients who they've been to a DNS practitioner and they, they failed, and I'm, I'm, I don't know what his success rate is, but I'm, I have to assume that a lot, he gets a lot of people better. And I, and I know some athletes who he has, actually. However, um, you know, someone will come in doing uh, bear crawls or they're doing standing pal-off presses, which is a rotational uh, yeah. challenge, as you know. And then I give them a, uh, a, a lateral shear test and it lights up their back. And I'll say, well, I just provoked lateral shear. That's what a pal-off press does. No wonder whoever the DNS person was that gave you bear crawls and DNS, they actually mimicked the driver of your pain. So maybe they just went to a person who wasn't a good DNS practitioner, but those were the dead wrong things to give to that person with their yeah. particular uh, pain drivers. So, you know, in some of the crawling patterns, they are applicable to people who create distal stability to gain proximal mobility. Well, I get it. That's what a baby does. That's all they have. They're, they're rolling and laying on the ground. Right. But adults, ex with the exception of groundwork and wrestling and jujitsu, and uh, possibly some other quite specialized uh, athletics, I don't always see the transference. So anyway, that's all I can say. Uh, <laughs> um, We're just priming you for when someone else asks you again. A <laughs> <clears throat> um, couple questions from the crowd. Is there a, a future? What's, the, what's in the future for McGill's Big Three? Any changes? Um, do you think it'll evolve into four? No, I don't. Because uh, let me again give the scientific background. So if we can uh, start with the tenant that proximal stiffness is non-negotiable for an articulated linkage, the next question becomes, what is the optimal way to achieve that? Uh, so we then searched for, you know, I don't know how many experiments we've done assessing different exercises for the loads they impose on the spine in terms of bend, compression, shear, their moments, etc. And what was the stability index that they created? Because what we're looking for, if we are trying to stabilize proximally an efficient way to guarantee proximal stability, in a very spine conserving way, because these are people who are load uh, compromised. Yeah. Yeah. The, le, le, intolerant might be a bit strong for, for some people, but, but load gets their back a bit. So, uh, you know, I've assessed all kinds of exercises and the three that kept bubbling up to the top at being 
uh, are creating the best ratio, the most spine sparing, the most uh, ensuring of stability was the bird dog for the back musculature, the side plank for the uh, lateral musculature, the obliques, latissimus dorsi, quadratus lumborum, and it's only on half of the side uh, of the torso. So it's very spine conserving. Man, you've got to fight to find me a better exercise that challenges the lats, the QL, and the obliques. Um, and then that modified curl up uh, for the abdominals. Now, some people can go to and uh, replace that with a front plank. I get it, but you've got to have good shoulders to do it, uh, etc. But those exercises then can become very adaptable. Consider a person who has had knee replacement or they've got uh, hip arthritis. They can't get down on the floor. Fabulous. You can still do all of those exercises in a standing form. Standing, doing a bird dog with one arm on the kitchen table might be an example. We can then get into, um, uh, let's see now. Uh, I might get into some neurological programming where we start creating pulse production in, in the bird dog or the right. uh, curl up to, to start priming the neurology for, for athletes, how to create a stable core with pulses through the ball and socket joints. And then uh, we did clinical trials of them with different athletic groups. Um, we do know that some sprinters will sprint faster after they've done the big three. Why? It creates a neural stiffness. It can last for 20 minutes. It can last up to two hours in some people. When we measured it in Muay Thai fighters, they did the big three. We then measured uh, the stiffness, just the resting stiffness in their core, and it was higher. And then when we measured uh, strikes on an instrumented uh, bag, they hit with greater speed in their limbs and more force because we proximally stiffened the articulated linkage. Uh, and then we did a six-week trial. And uh, of course, if the person was highly trained and already had good proximal stability, a six-week training trial won't create that much uh, more of an effect. But if they weren't well-trained, we saw very large effects. So again, it's how you interpret the data. Right. You have to know where the person came from to understand the size of the training effect. But anyway, uh, those exercises proved yet again there was something quite optimal about them. So th there's a little bit of a start, um, but are those exercises sufficient for the average person? The answer is yes. Will it get you to the Olympics? The answer is no. So now using that as a foundation, we would then build programming out of that for whatever athleticism the person needed to perform at a much higher level. But anyway, there was a... Uh, a Pretty good start on the discussion. Your, your critical linkage between the clinicians and the trainers or the performance folks. Uh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? And we, we broached this topic a little bit last time, how the uh, medical professions have so blurred. And... Uh, I, I don't think we mentioned this, but uh, years ago, I don't even know if there's a, is, is Newsweek, the magazine, still around? In some shape or form, yeah. Okay. Well, Newsweek used to have an article or an issue once a year on the top physicians in the U.S. 
they called me up one year, a few years ago, and they said, who's the best spine doc? You know, because I'm a Canadian, I, I didn't have any bias on this. Who's the best spine doc in, in, the, uh, in the United States? And I said, well, just so I understand your question, is it that if I had 20 different back pained patients, because you know where my brain is going, what the hell's a back pained person? Do they have torn ligaments or, right, right. <laughs> you know, a disc or, or uh, a fracture or, uh, you know, whatever it, it is? So I would send each one of those people probably to, to, to you know, after the assessment for, to some specific approach. But nonetheless, I said, is your question, if I had 20 people with back pain, what clinician in the U.S. would get the most of them better? And they said, yes, that's the question. And I said, I'd send them to Clayton Skaggs in St. Louis. And then they said, okay, great. What medical school did he go to? Because they wanted all the particulars. And I said, well, you know, I know he teaches at a medical school because at the time he was teaching uh, musculoskeletal health for pregnant women, I think was what he was teaching <laughs> at uh, Wash U Medical School at that particular time. But um, anyway, I said, I would send him to Clayton Skagg. What medical school? I said, I don't think he's ever been to medical school. I know he teaches at one, but uh, I believe he was originally trained as a chiropractor. And there was a silence. And uh, uh, the, I, I said, uh, not really knowing what to do, but I sort of knew what they were thinking. And I said, oh, do you really want me to name the top spine surgeon? And they said, yes, yes, that's who we want. And <laughs> I said, well, my job is to put the spine surgeons out of business. So I, I, I can't give you a... <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it's a roundabout way at getting at, at your question, that this blurring of, of what we all do. Um, but the real spine Jedi masters, to use one of your terms, um, I couldn't care less what their original training was. What I care is, do they get people better? Do they follow good, sound, biological, and, and scientific principles? And uh, do they have many tools in their toolbox? They have tools for soft tissue work. Do they have tools to teach and coach good movement? Do they have good assessment skills? Do they understand neurology so that they can interpret those signs and know what to do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't care whether they can try and cut pain out with a knife or not. Um, so uh, most of the people who would be in the category that I just described, that I love working with, I consider them uh, great mentors and colleagues. Uh, many of them are Kairos. So uh, I'd be hard pressed. There are a few that originally came through the physical therapy uh, route, a uh, very, very few who came through the medical doctor training route. They uh, seem almost unable sometimes to understand some of the most uh, simple scientific uh, foundational concepts. But uh, anyway, I, uh, there you go. <laughs> so yeah. so it, it, it's a blurring. And I will also say, uh, my uh, representative and, and colleague in, in London, England, is a trainer. Yeah. He is absolutely fabulous at assessing back pain. I've trained him how to read uh, MRs. He's uh, 
just crack at coaching good movement and uh, detecting pain. And uh, he spends uh, so much time in the operating theater, uh, anatomy labs, learning, learning, learning. But he, he is absolutely fabulous. So there, there you go. It, it's all uh, this. Well, we can, you know, if we had to, we can travel in a time machine through history and understand that a lot of these lines were drawn um, historically and politically. And it's probably that the internet has obliterated a lot of those lines. And we all are starting to understand that we do speak the same language. Um, mm -hmm. And if we come from a lot of different directions, as long as we can take down those, those walls of bias, you understand that there is a common language there that we can all speak. And if you're patient centered, uh, that language will stay true. <clears throat> now, in my opinion, sometimes the MDs have the hardest time doing that, but they also have the most to lose if that political or historical wall is taken down. So, well, I, 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 I you know, <laughs> I'll give you a comment on that. I, I have one of our uh, providers in Pasadena, California, is a physician, and uh, it's it's just been fabulous working with him. And uh, he was an outstanding physician. And I must admit, in some of the patients we've, we've had that are truly uh, challenging cases, he's found some comorbid uh, uh, conditions that I completely missed. But his hmm. training brought them out. So, you know, he was just fabulous. Yeah. Um, but now he says, I cannot go back to train and practice, sorry, I cannot go back and practice the way I was trained as a medical doctor. I have to now set aside two or three hours to assess a patient. It is what uh, I can, uh, it, it's necessary for me to change their life. I need to spend that amount of time and truly understand them to guide them properly. And it's also uh, fulfilling for me. I would be totally unfulfilled now to go back and see 30 patients a day and run them through the mill, knowing that I'm not going to get them better. Yeah. So anyway, there, there's a perspective on a physician now who almost has had, had to unlearn some of the things that he was taught. No, those are great anecdotes because they, they actually helped me eliminate a lot of questions the, <clears throat> the crowd had about certain techniques or <clears throat> certain approaches, which is good. Because we can say it's not about the technique or the approach, but how you interpret it and, and apply it. Mm. Um, so one of the fans, fans, one of the clinicians has a question about uh, squatting and the hips and all that. We kind of do, do we kind of already know that answer? Do we already sort of know Scottish hip, Polish hip? Do we have to really review it? Well, uh, I mean, they might not, but some people have well, asked some of these questions where we already know they, they fed you questions. We all know the answers to already. It's like, uh, okay, so now well, we've should, got, uh, should a person deep squat? Uh, that's, yeah, we've got Jerry. Yeah. We've got Jerry Seinfeld on the stage. Let's have him run through all of his famous jokes. So go through your, uh, go through your hip stuff. Well, again, let, let's go back to a, a high level establish a principle to give us some framework for the question. Maybe that will be more interesting. And that would be and, more powerful. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's the only way I know how to make any decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. My brain has to start that way. So how deep should a person squat? Well, my brain would go back to this. And by the way, what's the two word answer? 
It depends. It depends, exactly. So it depends on many things. Um, I, I would say, well, what, what's the purpose? Why would someone want to squat in the first place? So uh, a squat is an exercise. An exercise is a tool. It's a tool to reach an objective. So is the squat the best tool to reach the objective for that individual that's in front of you? Um, how I would go about something like that is I would draw three columns on a piece of paper. In the first column, I would write down, um, let's say they were a NHL hockey player. And then let's pick someone else who's a power lifter. There, that would be a nice contrast. Then I would write down, what are the physicalities, the variables that you need to be a high-level NHL hockey player? And if you don't know the sport, you can't do this. So you do need some expertise on performance. Then we'll write down the variables that you need to be a world-class power lifter. The second column, I'm now going to assess the person who's in front of me now. Do they have what we've just identified as being necessary? So we've measured the demand or quantified the demand. Now we have to measure in that person their capacity. So uh, in the hockey player, um, did, did they need to deep squat? The answer is no. Most of the power of the hockey player or the golfer comes in hip external rotation. So I'm not even really needing to test that. But now let's go to the power lifter. Do you need to deep squat? Well, hold on a second. Let's watch them because a power lifter, you want them to have uh, just the right amount of mobility that they have to actually pull down into the last little bit to be uh, satisfying the, the legality of the squat, depending on their federation. So you want nice, tight hamstrings. You don't want loose hamstrings. That's a weaker muscle. You want a tighter muscle. So do you see in both of those cases, I would say this person doesn't need to deep squat. So it's not even an issue. I'm going to replace the tool probably by maybe pushing the car back and forth in the parking lot or a farmer's carry or something like that. So I might totally avoid the whole issue by saying they don't even need it it's 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 not an issue let's move on but now let's pick a sport or or an activity or maybe the person just wants to deep squat so they need to do it can they do it and then uh let, let let's choose the uh, the best tool uh for it well now let's have a discussion about anatomy and and you know where i'm headed here yeah we're going to start this argument by uh, following the incidence of hip orthopedic disease throughout the world. So the highest rate, incidence rate of, uh, F, uh, of sorry, of uh, hip dysplasia, which is a congenitally shallow hip socket, is in Poland. So Poles, on average, have the shallowest hip sockets and the most dysplastic hip. However, if they survive dys dysplasia, look where the Olympic lifters come from. They uh, quite often are centered in Poland, uh, Bulgaria, Western Russia, which is the Ukraine, etc. And, and it goes south a little bit. Well, certainly there's pockets in Asia as well, like Japan, for example, has a, a very high a rate of, of hip dysplasia, but they have very shallow hip sockets as well, on average. Then let's take the opposite orthopedic disease, FAI. 
Femoral acetabular impingement comes from having a very deep hip socket. So when the person flexes in a deep squat, the femur bangs into the labrum of the uh, hip socket or the acetabulum, and they, they, they get pain and, and various flavors and forms of uh, FAI. You don't see Olympic lifters coming from Scotland or Ireland. What you do see in their indigenous uh, sport, the Highland Games, is a standing strength, the caber toss. And, and, yeah. and, and it's interesting as you go around the world and you match the cultural dance and the martial arts that comes from that land and that haplogroup, that genetic haplogroup, it so perfectly matches their, their physicality to take advantage of what they have and disadvantage of their uh, opponents. That, that's been a, a great joy of mine is studying why people, uh, why there are different forms of Okinawan karate versus something <laughs> somewhere else in the world. So anyway, my, my, my point then is I would then assess the architecture of the hip and you don't need to medical images. You simply do a hip scour test and uh, maybe they get on all fours and do a pelvic rock back. Um, yep. It also would reveal, do they have a, a funky knee on one side? Or, you know, I had a power lifter uh, not too long ago. We're just making a YouTube video of him, actually. And he depth, he, he, the bar dipped to the right every time he, he deep squatted. And he couldn't figure this out. And it wasn't until we did that orthopedic test that we showed him. The reason you're doing that is your right hip is getting impinged and you have to shift your right hip back, causing the bar to dip, et cetera. So it's not your fault. It's, it's how your body has learned to adapt uh, unbeknownst to you. Um, anyway, there's... Uh, uh, a, 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 I've got two more points, if I can, though, to, to maybe even three. But uh, we just finished a study. I, I've still got some holdover studies that I'm doing in my retirement. And one I, I do with my, my great colleague in Serbia, uh, Alex uh, Dijanovic, Dr. Dijanovic. And uh, he led a study with uh, training people, and they did a full squat for six weeks, several times a day, uh, holding for, I think it was five minutes, sorry, five seconds, pardon me. In the, and then the other training group just did a half squat. And I can't remember the duration of the trial, but it was uh, several weeks. Anyway, then he measured the changes in back strength and uh, back endurance. They were actually higher in the half squat. So you relax when you go to the bottom of the squat. Um, if you want a stronger back, it, it, and, and we're not the first to show this, by the way. Um, if you take a volleyball team, uh, and I've done this experiment twice, and the coach has now commissioned you as a performance and orthopedic specialist to increase the vertical jump on their volleyball team. And let, let's, let's choose the squat as the primary exercise approach of choice to increase their, their vertical. Um, and, and it was amazing, the results we got was very similar both, both times we did this. 50% of the team increased their vertical jump a couple of inches. 40% lost height off their vertical jump and 10% it made no difference. Well, what we learned was had we asked a question first of those players, we didn't even need to do the study to find out why we got the two uh, subgroups. Are you naturally quick or are you naturally strong? 
And players, it's uncanny. They know the answer to that. And I, I'm sure you know whether you're naturally quick or you're naturally strong. Athletes know this. And uh, I'd say, okay, if you're naturally quick, you go over there. And then naturally strong, you guys go over there. What, which group do you think jumped higher with a squat program? With a squat program? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to say naturally quick. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. So if you're neurologically uh, naturally quick and you add more strength, chances are in our subgroup, you will, you will jump higher. But think of what you do when you squat. You activate the muscles. Muscle contractions and activations do two things. They create muscle force, but they also create muscle stiffness. And the more activation, the more stiffness that you get. You know, when we, we measure the big fighters, the guys who really work on, on producing big muscles, they don't punch as hard because they push their punches. Right. Absolutely. Muscle and they don't snap, which, you know, you take a guy like Anderson Silver, GSP, or any of these guys, they snap and, and the forces are just extraordinary, even though they don't look that impressive. So then when you take the naturally strong player and you add more strength to strength, the stiffness wins and they actually slow down. So you've made them stronger and slower. So anyway, it's so interesting how different types of physiologies, both uh, muscle physiology and neurologically, how they respond to the same exercise. So this is just so much fun, what, 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 just in, in a deep squat. And then my, my, my final thought is, why are they deep squatting? Do, do they want to activate <laughs> right. weights or, or what? So, you know, if it's the tool of choice, fabulous, but I hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> and people change over time too. So if you would have asked me if I was naturally quick or, or strong in my sort of like high school and college days, I would have said quick because I was a state finalist in track and field. Yeah. And in basketball, I could jump up and touch the top of the backboard square, the little square, wow. not the, not okay. the backboard itself. That would be quite a jump, but the little square. Yeah. You know, and now that I'm older, I would say I'm naturally strong and I'm right. feeling much more Scottish. I've got stiff, stiff, strong <laughs> hips. And, and uh, you know, I, if I had my choice in which martial arts to choose, I would probably choose. Let's stand up, let's stand up and swing. It, it, I'm I'm going to say yeah, probably a good idea. <laughs> probably not a good idea to do any of those things anymore. But <laughs> well, yeah, well, th this is the thing because we have the same discussions over uh, the architecture of a sprinter versus the, and I'm talking the spine architecture with a lot of lordosis versus the typical uh, UFC type of MMA athlete that we're seeing these days. They have very flat backs, very little lordosis. Right. Large. But man, look out, those guys can kick you in the head. That's but, right. But, but, but they can't run. Nope. If, if you watch them sprint, they, 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 they really just can't produce those mechanics. And yet a sprinter can't kick you in the head. So I always say, if you're getting into a fight, ask the guy to turn around first and have a look at his little back <laughs> lordosis. And then well, you first just look at his ears. And if he's got the uh, chewed up cauliflower ears, then walk away. But then ask him to turn around and run. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's um, always lots of fun, isn't it? As I wrap up uh, the book itself, that I like, I mean, of course I've poured over low back pain. Um, I've got, I think low back and third edition. What's that? Low back disorders, low back disorders. I've got the third, the second and third edition. Um, but the book for patients has become a tool to me 
because I give it to patients quite often. Um, and I use it uh, because I think it gives me a little bit of social proof or uh, because patients have heard so many different things from so many different physicians, it's nice for me to give them a book that says the same things that I'm saying so that it doesn't sound like I'm just making something up. Like when we have a discussion about how you behave, if you have a flexion intolerant low back, how you behave in the morning to spare your spine, getting out of bed and going to the bathroom and brushing your teeth and eating breakfast. And sometimes clinicians like us will get a funny look like that seems pretty inconsequential. Uh, and, and then I have to try to teach patients that that is actually one of the most important things you can do. So giving them the book uh, helps. Yeah. Um, inside that book, and you addressed it and I brought it up last time on our podcast that did not work, was the commentary you had about uh, cervical spine manipulation or having too many of them. Um, and the point I wanted to make was that there wasn't any reference to it. There wasn't anything for me to chase down. Uh, to discuss instability of the cervical spine or when is too much adjustment? When is, when is it appropriate? When do you need to know when to stop? When are you creating instability? Cause we just, we just don't have much in the way of measurement tools on, on that. Yeah. Um, but you said it, you said, I, I did. And that's fair. Uh, it, I, I've taught at a lot of chiropractic, uh, colleges, uh, around the globe. And it's so interesting when I have a group of uh, fourth year students or new interns and how many of them say, oh no, my neck's a mess, sorry. And uh, they say, I, I just was manipulated over and over in, in practice. And uh, that's primarily uh, where that comes from. So they behave, if you assessed them, as if they'd been a whiplash patient. Yeah. Yeah, they do. I agree. Um, anyway, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I should say this or not. Um, I, uh, as you may know, uh, played football in, in uh, high school and then in my, my first year of, of university. Uh, I actually broke C4 and uh, it was an anterior uh, wedge fracture. Uh, I was sent to the chiropractor of the professional team and without assessment, he manipulated my neck. Crack, crack. Yeah. And just about killed me. Uh, and I, I, I use that in terms of just pain at the time and, sure. and disruption. I, More I literally, you know, yeah, well, uh, no, I, that, that, that was probably the wrong choice. That was a poor choice of words, but, but it was very traumatic. Sure. And then, and then I, I, I remember thinking at the time, even with zero training that I had, this doesn't seem right. I've just injured my neck. Uh, and then later on, uh, I had the radiology workup and they said, son, you've got a, you've got, a, you've got broken your neck. And I thought, what the heck did that guy just do to me? Right. <laughs> and uh, so to uh, manipulate a neck without uh, a pretty good assessment to start. Um, and I know the, the new generation absolutely does. But the old generation, uh, they just would 
quite often bang away. Oh, you've got some neck pain without asking too much about the mechanism or the nature of the whiplash or trauma to go and, and adjust it. And anyway, it, it, it's beyond me. Well, I, you know, I don't remember if we talked about this, but I'm pretty sure we did, you know, your, your breadth of knowledge in the low back and low back pain and low back disorders is, you know, it'll never be complete, but it's very high. Um, the, the breadth of knowledge from, for anybody, it seems in the cervical spine region is very low, regardless, like there just isn't much research. There isn't much in far, as far as assessment and protocols and what's appropriate for care and what's not appropriate for care. Um, we, you know, we have a well-established, the Don Murphy's book, Clinical Reasoning and Spine Pain, has a well-established sort of path for young clinicians to follow to manage low back pain, which I don't know if you've read that or not, but I think you would find it quite agreeable. I, I actually know it, and I've, I've, I, I obviously know many of the protocols in there because I think that there might be one or two of ours. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but which, which I, it, it's all fair. I mean, that's why we right. publish things to 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 get them out there, of course. But, but if you look at cl clinical reasoning and spine pain for the cervical spine, it's right. not the same presentation. It's a case study presentation. Right. Which is, is fair, I suppose, to begin with, because that's where you generate your original things that you want to probe and, and test later. But uh, people will ask me, oh, uh, you know, can you help me with my neck? And I say, no, I am not the world's expert on, on the neck. And then they'll say, who is? And then I have to think a little bit. Um, I can think of some excellent clinicians who I would recommend, depending on their part of the world. But if they started to ask me about who understands uh, the mechanics of the neck and the neurology and whatnot, now I become a little bit more uh, hard pressed. And uh, students on occasion will come to me and say, you know, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? Or if you were to look um, across the, the current state of uh, medical practice right now, where would you go to, to really make a difference? And I would say, I, I, I suggest the cervical spine. Absolutely. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, look, look, man, I'm, you know how hard it was for me to be the low back expert of the world. And now you're trying to <laughs> ask me about the neck. Come on. Yeah. Next, the elbow. Uh, well, uh, I mean, of course, there are some general principles that uh, sure, are, sure, are sure. somewhat similar. But I, I and that's would, probably why McKinsey works so well um, in general in in both areas. Is that the, the it follows general principles both ways? Well, let me ask you this then, because you certainly have more experience than I would. Would you say that if you did the uh, typical directional probing of pain mechanism according to the McKinsey protocol in the lumbar, and then you did it in a cervical patient, and you multiplied that times a hundred times. Do you, would you say in your experience you would get the same efficacy rate? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, you'd get a higher efficacy rate in the lumbar, I'm assuming. Sure, it's just more reproducible. It's a yeah, more um, yeah. that's homogeneous my, anatomy. Yeah. Like the anatomy is much more homogenous. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's you know, that what you've just said there is so interesting. I mean, I've done a little bit of cervical spine work, but it's mostly with my chiropractic students. Um, yeah. I think back to Bresnik and Ross and that paper we wrote on motion palpation in cervical spines, and we would um, have clinicians, you know, do their, their 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 thumb probe on the spinous processes and say, okay, well, there's the joint that isn't moving very well, and then we'd look at the anatomy. And it was because one facet joint was orientated at 45 degrees on one side right. and was re orientated at 21 on the other. It yeah. was, and that asymmetry of facet uh, pairings seemed to be so much more asymmetric in people's necks than it did in the lumbar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you, I think it's in low back disorders where you've, you've broken down the range of motion for each vertebral segment of the low back? Well, that's only textbook average. Yeah, right. But yeah. but that stuff, it completely changes in the cervical spine. I mean, th those averages, those textbook averages for each vertebrae from L1 to L5 are still somewhat similar. You get a little bit more range of motion in the um, upper back than the lower back and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But in the cervical spine, it changes a lot. You know, the upper cervical spine is primarily for uh, rotation and movement, flexion, extension, and whatnot. And then the lower cervical spine is not as mobile and it's much more of a stability type of segment. Yeah, um, I'm assuming it's going to be a little thicker as well. Yeah, so you, you know, maybe it, it's, it's these concepts that I try to think about. Okay, so I've got somebody who's got issues with the lower cervical spine, which is mostly a stability region of the spine, the, the cervical thoracic region. Maybe I don't want to do too much mobilization there uh, and then uh, make sure that there's as much mob mobility, mobility as possible in the upper cervical spine. So there's a lot of different ways I try to focus what I'm doing with patients based on these sort of anatomical findings that I see. Um, yeah. yeah, you'll enjoy this quick story. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, there are a few just absolute master soft tissue people on this planet and I, I work, work with an athlete and get the big stuff right, but they're still not gold medal performance just yet. And, you know, maybe uh, I've cleaned up their movement. I've settled down a disc or whatever it is, but that quadratus lumborum is still just nagging away there. And I do not have the skills to deal with it. And I send them to my person and within three soft tissue, magical things that they do, the person is unleashed and they're, they're right back at the top of the Olympics again. But anyway, there's uh, one of those uh, people who isn't that far from me. And if you uh, are in the track and field world, you may have heard of the name Larry Bell. He's a, a Cairo, not, not too far. In, in fact, I'm going down to his clinic uh, next Saturday to do what we call playing jazz. And we see patients and we play jazz back and forth. <laughs> it's, it's just so much fun. But anyway, uh, so I, I told you I have a history of uh, C4 fracture and uh, oh, I was in a bad funk. I, I couldn't do a push up without radiating pain down into my arms and, and whatnot. And I certainly couldn't check the blind spot of a car coming up on my left hand oh, side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I was really feeling older than my years. And uh, so I just, we were playing jazz and I, I, Larry, I think looked at me and he said, what's going on with your neck? And I said, oh, it's that. 
And he said, let me have a look at that. You know, he field and probed and assessed and just the most gentlest of uh, movements. But man, I was unstable for two weeks. I just felt as though my neck was, was ragdolled. And then now, as that two week uh, after effect settled in and I was able to groove the patterns all over, I feel like a young man again. I'm fabulous. So there's, there's my little neck manip uh, story. In, in the hands of a master. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, there's probably some people who can explain that better than me, but <clears throat> the masters with soft tissue, they blow my mind too. Yeah. No, um, so that's about all I got. I would say as a word of advice to the youngsters out there, yes, get yourself a nice case of back mechanic books and use them at your disposal. They're very valuable. Um, you told me, before we started that as we finish this podcast, you want me to put the mic down and back away because you have something to say. Well, all I was going to say was uh, we've known each other uh, a few years and you've always impressed me as that person who does go back and before he opens his mouth, he establishes a principle for good debate and good discussion. So good on you, uh, Bobby, and uh, you're, you're really good at this. So I, I, I hope you keep going with it, and thanks for all that uh, you contribute. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Now, my typing skills are a little different. They're a little more <laughs> extemporaneous. I, 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 it's a finger diarrhea is what it is. I just type whatever I'm feeling at the moment. But <laughs> well, when I, do, when I decide to speak, I think about it first, yes. Yeah, you, you certainly do. And I hope one day we get to play a little clinical jazz together. That would be awesome. Yes, that would be awesome. Play a little jazz. Uh, thank you very much. This is going to go down as the best podcast, maybe even ever, but so far in the history of the FTCA podcast. So thank <laughs> okay, thanks, Bobby. Bye for now. Yeah, travel well. <laughs>